I think algorithms are something that are deeply entrenched in us and it goes with the whole notion that once you buy, say like, as a weird example, a yellow car, like all you'll notice at that point then on is other yellow cars, right? So I think a lot of these algorithms are built they're built into us. It's uh, not just a YouTube thing. It's not just a Russian troll thing. Although, those fuckers are still out there. I know they're polluting my feet as we speak. I, 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 I'm on to you motherfuckers. So what's all this talk about algorithms, Johnny? Huh? What's going on? Why all of a sudden you talking about yellow cars, huh? What's up? What's the story? All right, calm down. Just bear with me here. The whole notion is that uh, Friday is kind of, uh, is it, was it, no, Thursday is like a mad scramble on podcast. I think, you know, there's people that uh, are generating these podcasts that um, have similar uh, patterns of, 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 inter- of of dropping their, their podcast at the same time. Like, I do mine. Mine are uh, Mondays and Thursdays, just like uh, Bill Burr. And uh, one of the other ones that comes out, um, I think on Monday, I think it was Monday. Monday or Thursday, I can't remember. Fuck. I had to have been Thursday. I don't know. Shit. But uh, my whole thing about where I left off with mushrooms and stuff on the last podcast is that um, it really is like a... a to me, it seems like a, a, I don't know, a harmless kind of interesting endeavor. But, but now I've noticed, like, oh shit, okay. So I start, I start, kind of, or the, the algorithm now, the the natural algorithm of life now. Now that I've bought the yellow car and I see nothing but yellow cars now, <clears throat> is that now that I have this kind of uh, strange. Uh, uh, kind of a, I'm cultivating kind of a, or rather harvesting an obsession with mushrooms. And I'm not going to, hopefully won't get to that, but you know, such as life. I mean, I have these tendencies where I tend to like get real fixated on things. And, uh, so, but, uh, it's not, not so much the study of the mushrooms, but it's the cult, it's the, uh, pursuit of mushrooms going out finding something in the wild foraging maybe it's the foraging maybe it's the foraging part because because uh one of the podcasts i like to listen to every so often if it's uh if i if i uh if it connects with me is david chang's um podcast and uh he's the uh, korean uh korean american chef who's uh he's up there with like alex atala and uh, Rene Redzep, he knows all those guys. He hung out with Bourdain, and he's, you know, he's in that group, you know. And he's got the Momofuku uh, Empire, all these uh, noodle joints, and he's he's a great chef by, by all accounts. <clears throat> His biography, though, isn't uh, I don't know, or autobiography was uh, he lost me pretty quick, you know. He is I don't know, whatever. He he knows his shit though, uh, you know. Wiley Dufresne's kind of like one of his closest buddies um so 
he's an interesting cat, you know. He um, he also knows David Cho, the Korean artist. Uh, they're 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 kind of an odd couple. They're kind of funny, you know, because David Cho is such an out there presence. He's just kind of like he's the absurdist existentialist, I guess, as uh, Chuck Palahniuk would say uh, to David Chang's more. David Chang comes off more as like a real practically minded. Uh, I mean, he he knows his shit. You know, he went to Culinary Institute. Um, even though he kind of uh, goes out on a limb and kind of preaches that it's better to kind of get your hands dirty and much the same way like Anthony Bourdain said, go to work for a year like at an Olive Garden or a restaurant or something for a year just to see the machinations or the tempo or the pace before you join a culinary school. Because I think there's a maybe a misnomer in culinary schools where it's like you learn how to make a fucking beef wellington but then you go you know you get a job at like like say olive garden where it's just a kind of a free-for-all frenzy where you're making just you know i mean i could i can clown on it and call it microwave dog shit but some of it is but you know there's still a tempo in those kitchens that you have to subscribe to that it is probably across the boards i'm sure you know and that's Maybe a bit of a generalization, but at the same time, it's not. I mean, those any most kitchens, any good kitchen is going to be busy. Any any kitchen that is going to want to produce anything, good or bad, is you know going to hopefully be busy. But so this guy Chang, he's uh, his episode uh, that he came out with uh, this last week was about the show Chefs v Wild, Chefs versus Wild, uh, some show, some series show on. Uh, uh, Hulu, I believe, which I just got rid of that app because fuck my, I've got like, again, I've got like 83 gigs. I'm trying to cram into 64 gigs on my phone. And I just, I have to make sacrifices here and there. It's like, you know, when your plane's going down and you gotta, you know, you've got a pallet of, uh, of, uh, fucking, (laughs) you know, dry rations. And you're like, well, you know, I could hang on to that pallet of dry rations as the plane's going down, but uh, I need to right this ship. So I, I, you know, in lieu of survival, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to jettison this the, these rations. And so that's what Hulu became. Is like I just had to sacrifice something to the temple. You know, it, it was my Mayan, my Mayan temple sacrifice, and uh, it's gone. Um, but I don't really binge watch a whole lot of it. I don't have the attention span. Nor do, the, nor do I have the time, but uh, but it's some kind of series where I guess they take chefs out, which it's not, the premise is really fascinating. So they take these chefs out, and this was in the episode being described by these, um, this one particular chef was up in British Columbia, Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, which is, uh, God, it'd be, that'd be a cool place to hang out and uh, check things out. It's kind of a, it's kind of interwoven, kind of intermi- uh, intermixed with uh, ocean and, um, and great mountains and forest and then big city life. It's kind of a, a, an expanded version, say, of like uh, Arcata or Humboldt County, you know, where you've got this cool little hub of, of a city uh, being Arcata and or Eureka, 
and then you got Humboldt Bay and then the ocean and then you got the redwoods but Vancouver would be like times 50 right size wise like just the whole scope of everything and so they take these chefs out in the wild and they I guess they're paired up with a survivalist see all this stuff to me is fascinating so you've got kind of like the uh, vocational skills of a chef um, and then you've got the craftiness of a survivalist of some sort so they're building like lean to you know those like uh, where you gather up a bunch of sticks and you kind of create a lean to little shelter that you're going to sleep in and then you cover that then you then you, then you line up all the all these sticks along the edges and then you cover that with moss and dirt and leaves and that's where you're sleeping motherfucker like there's no blanket there's no fucking pillow you know this isn't the holiday Inn express so uh it just is what it is and um and then you got to forage for your meal. So you, so once you find that meal, whatever it is, and in this case it was uh, a lot of mushrooms. It was like they were talking about ch- uh, chicken of the woods, which is a, a, an orange-looking uh, mushroom, which was uh, one of the first ones I had noticed when I was when I downloaded this app and I was reading up on mushrooms in this. These uh, these these mushroom farmers up the road were. Uh, you know, that's a real popular one among the chanterelles or the, the sorrels, uh, or the, uh, you know, the shiitakes and so forth. But the chicken of the woods is, uh, is an edible one. So he's, so they forage for some of these mushrooms and it it just, I, I made a connection already with this. I'm like, how cool would that be? Like, it's kind of a blend this particular series, if I dis, if I decided I'd watch it, which I, I mean, I got to be honest with myself, I'm not probably going to watch it, but, but, but I can entertain a lot of the scenarios in my head with like, what a fascinating concept, you know? So you've got the, you've got the, uh, you've got the uh, sensibility of a chef and then you've got the sensibility of a survivalist, which are two different worlds, which is, um, because obviously a survivalist isn't going to like uh, try and make some, uh, you know, he's not searing, he, he won't be searing any of the food that he foraged. Whereas, you know, the chef's going to come at, come at it from that angle. How can I sear, you know, <laughs> you know, instead of just making something palatable, like you can just go out there and just eat cliff bars all day. Like uh, David Cho used to do when he would go to the Congo looking for some imaginary dinosaur. Yeah, check it out. Well, so he was, uh, David Cho, would ha- he went out to the Congo when he was younger and he hung out with the, uh, I think it's the, the, ha- the Hanzas, the Hamzas, which is a, uh, they used to be, uh, if I, I might be misrepresenting this, or might be misquoting this, but the ha- they were, used to be uh, headhunters, but they also, they also, um, they also hunt uh, chimpanzees. And, uh, and then they eat the brains of the chimpanzee. So he's like, eh, I'm cool on that. I got this backpack full of cliff bars. So he just kind of lived off cliff bars and stuff. And, um, but, uh, fascinating shit, you know, 
good lord, you're in the Congo of all places? Like, that's a, that's a, that's a dark, that's the dark, that's the deep dark center, man, of Africa. So, uh, fuck, and he just, he just decided to go, and he's just an art, he's just a guy, he's just a painter, you know, he's an artist, like, but, uh, I love shit like that, I like the, I like the, I like the blend, the inter, interwoven blending, say, of, like, the, uh, somebody with, like, a, a, a an artist mentality or a, or a background or educational background or a scholarly background interspersed or inter, interwoven with, uh, you know, a, a, a backdrop or a setting like that, like a Hamza tribe there. These guys are fucking, now they go out, they fucking, they can't wait to go out and f- stalk these chimpanzees, you know? And it's just, it's, it's fat. It's like, it's like uh, academic, and uh, it's like an academic perspective interwoven with the natural world, right? So it's a perfect combination, right? So as I'm kind of relaying all this to my youngest, so I picked her up uh, Friday after I was listening to this 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 podcast about chefs versus the wild. And, uh, I had, uh, this last weekend, my youngest was taking the SAT up in Jackson, which I'd mentioned previously. So I had to, uh, to knock out a couple of routes early morning and be done. I was done by like four and she was working. She worked till seven. And so I went down, I actually got, I, uh, I got down to, uh, pick her up because, um, even though she's, excuse me, got a, uh, uh, you know, she can, she drive, she has a car and she can drive. She has a driver's license. She's that poor little check engine light of hers that she drives around town. I just don't trust. So I, I made the effort to go down and just retrieve her. And I got to get, she works at like, um, it's odd how like, um, I don't know this. Everyone I know is in the healthcare field now, uh, of some sort. And she's working for an outfit now that sells retail like walkers and commodes and wheelchairs and stuff like that so I I burst in you know three minutes before closing uh to pick her up um and I'd never been there before but but I walk in and she's up there up at the register there and I go I'd like to test drive one of these wheelchairs please and she's like that's my dad (laughs) so I, uh, so I got, I got a chance to actually see her in her, uh, in her environment, in her, in her, uh, natural environment <laughs> or, or unnatural rather. I don't know whatever perspective you choose to take on that. But, uh, so I, from there it was like, so seven, she, she had to go back and pack a bag and then we took off for Jackson. So I drove from basically from Sacramento to Modesto to retrieve her and then up to Jackson which is about an hour a little over an hour from there um, where we stayed the night because the next morning we had to be up fairly early to get over to um, get in the SAT testing started at uh, like seven well they had she had she felt she had to be at the school there by 7:45 to uh, 
it's like a, it's like, it's like going to a race. You know, you gotta get in line to get your your bib number. She had to get her uh, assignment because the school, it's the Argonaut High School up in Jackson. They, um, they, uh, you, they kind of. There's this lines of these, these kids, uh, most of which were Indian or Asian. Um, I found fascinating uh, in this kind of redneck hub up here. Most of them, you know, there was a, you know, probably a half, half, I mean, out of like, out of like, probably like, I don't know, five, six dozen kids I saw in line, waiting in in line, just a small handful were, uh, from Caucasia, right? So, uh, so do the math folks. I don't have to kind of spell it out for you. Um, immigrants, do the American dream better than the Americans. Uh, I'll say that till, uh, till the day I die. And, um, so she had to register or get her uh, packet or, or assignment to which, cause they all disperse into, uh, different classrooms so that each classroom is like, uh, 10 to 12 kids all throughout the campus. And then I, and then you're there for three or four hours just doing your tests. And so I hiked, I, I hiked my happy ass down to um, the track and I was, and I decided I'd do a time trial because I had to see like, what am I really doing out here? Because I don't know. I just look at my step count and my, my, my step count's telling me one thing, but it's giving me other information as well. It's telling me like I'm averaging four or five miles a day and I'm like, that can't be right. So I go down there and I'm on a legitimate quarter mile track and I just start laying into it. And it's interesting because it's, it's a little deceptive because it's flat and there's no resistance. There's no hills, there's no dirt, there's no rock. It's just flat, but it's precise. So my first lap I come through in four, about 414. And I'm, or, yeah, or just a shade over four, 408, 409. I'm thinking, gosh, yeah, maybe I am eight, mm, eight minutes per half is where my wheelhouse is, my comfort zone. But I come through the second lap and I'm right at about 808. So now I've run a, ne- or I've walked a negative split. And I'm thinking, oh, and by no effort of, I mean, it's just kind of momentum really that's helping me surge a little. It's not by any deliberation. I come through the mile, my mile time in, uh, I think just under 16. So I'm running now, now I'm doing, I'm officially doing negative splits. And, uh, so I'm thinking to myself, now I know I can do under 16 minutes per mile on a time trial. Hypothetically, I could do it on a track. If there's a 24-hour race or a 100-miler on a track, oh, I guarantee I could do it under 24 hours. So, but then I decided I'm going to check my step count. So I clock a quarter mile, and I come through. At this point, I'm at 9,100 steps with a lap right officially exactly at 9,100 steps before I start my count. 
And when I come through the next quarter mile, I'm at 95.60, so it's like, or 95.50, so it's like 450, 455 steps a quarter mile, which equates to 900 steps a half mile, which is 1,800 steps per mile. That's only, that's not much. That's fascinating. Like, so shit, I really probably am doing like five, six miles a day, unbeknownst to myself. So that was fascinating. But then I started, my hemorrhoids started acting up. Yeah, you heard right. So I decided I'm going to, okay, so I'm going to use this. So I'm going to do another half mile. I'm going to try and put myself kind of in a uh, manufactured situation of discomfort. I'm going to see if I I can, if if adversity is my friend, because it never is. Whenever I get the sniffles, man, or if, if I get sick, man, I, fuck, I fold faster than Superman on laundry day. I'm such, I just, I do not do well with adversity, but I'm figuring if I'm going to do a hundred miler, uh, yeah, I've got to, I've got to expose myself to the levels of discomfort I used to have to deal with, you know, cause there's shit, shit happens at a race. I mean, literally like I was watching the Rotterdam marathon, 1983 Rotterdam marathon. This is kind of shit I do. I'm a weirdo. And, uh, but I remember back in the day when I was running, I, I read a, the bio, uh, a biography of uh, Rob D. Costello, Robert D. Costello, the great Australian marathoner. And he was fucking phenomenal. He was a badass. Had legs like a tree trunk, you know? He was just a savage. I mean, a badass cross-country runner. Top three. I think he finished in the top three, top four of the World Cross-Country Championships. Which is no easy feat, particularly in, the, in this day and age. Because marathoners... He was, he was a really, 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 really good road 10K runner, 15K runner, but a great marathoner. He just didn't have the, the raw speed, which is, which is, uh, well, now more than ever, boy, it, it uh, now more than ever, it's definitely something that you need. in your repertoire, even if you're a marathoner, because I mean, look what's going on. I mean, these guys are fucking, you know, you've got runners coming from a, like this Ethiopian woman I was talking about last episode, uh, Tigets Hesifa, oh fuck, I couldn't even be pressed to, you know, try and pronounce her name properly without butchering it, but she was uh, an 800 meter runner in the 2016 Olympics. She, she, uh, which, uh, she's broken two minutes, which you have to, as a female in the Olympics, you have to, but the world championships last year were won by, uh, a thing Mu, who also won the Olympic title in the 800 meters, but she, it took a 157 for her to win. And this girl, this Ethiopian girl ran 159. She did break two. She ran 159. But now she's a marathoner, and she just ran two fifteen thirty seven, which is fucking just st- like staggeringly ridiculous fast. Third third fastest all time, but she came from an eight hundred meter background, so it's almost like you need it now. But anyway, what I'm what I was getting at was so D Costella, it was fuck. This guy'd be lucky if he broke two. 
in the half half mile, right? But I was watching the 83 Rotterdam Marathon in, in Holland when he ran against Alberto Salazar and Carlos Lopes. At the time, the two of the greatest marathoners, I mean, still of all time, but at the time, they were the best in the world. And uh, he beat him. But in the course of doing so, I remember reading in his biography that uh, he shit himself during the race. <laughs> it happens. It happens. You know, you just, your gut biome just can be a little traitorous, you know, can uh, rise up against you sometimes. And, uh, but he's still running at sub five minutes per mile clips, you know, competing with the best in the world and, uh, holding his own, but he, sh- but like, he just had a, he just had a, uh, he just had a, well, he had to, he had to let it loose. And, and this was a high profile, like there's a lot of money on the line. And, uh, but in an effort to, um, well, to down to to kind of de-emphasize it and not make it a big deal, uh, along the along the course, you know, they hand out water at aid stations and sponges, you know, for your forehead or your, uh, you know, to keep you cool. But he was using it to kind of to rinse down this, you know, this wonderful nastiness that would, that he had encountered while he was, you know, fighting it out with the two of the greatest marathoners in the world at the time. And sure enough, uh, so he's, he's, he's using these sponges to kind of, you know, wipe down the backs of his thighs. And it, and, and all of a sudden people start adopting this as, as like, this must be some kind of physio. Cause I think Guy Costello was like, a. a he had a he had a day job as like a he was like a physicist or something i could be wrong but some science related thing and based on his background with the knowledge that this is what his field was i mean um they took it as like some kind of like experimental or some kind of insider piece of knowledge like maybe if you keep your hamstrings cool because he beat him because he beat carlos Lo- carlos lopes was i mean fuck in 84 and 85, like, you couldn't beat Carlos Lopes. Carlos Lopes was, like, he was the, um, he was the world record holder at the time in the marathon at 207.12. He was a 20, he was the second fastest 10,000 meter runner of all time at, the, uh, at that point at, like, 20, he ran 27.17, only four seconds behind Fernando Mami, his countryman from Portugal. And he was the uh, the defending um, Olympic champion in the marathon in '84, and the defending world cross country champion. Like he was, he was the he was the man. He he you couldn't fuck with him. But this was '83, prior to all that. So De Costello just went after it, and he, and he beat him. He had a beating around two. I think he ran like two hundred eight thirty seven or something like that. But but it goes it goes to show you it's like a testament to like the toughness, the general toughness of. Uh, somebody like that. And I don't know why I went down that road. I can't remember what I was saying, but, but, so, you know, um, it's just, uh, 
oh, the discomfort of running. Oh, that's what it was. So, so I, uh, so I'm, yeah. So I'm on this track down in uh, Argonaut High School, like up in the hills, up in the foothills, and uh, all these, all these, uh, all these muffin top fucking football helicopter parents are unloading their lifted pickups and shit, getting ready for some Pop Warner football game with their kids and shit like that. And it's cool, whatever. It's like it's like Friday Night Lights. It's like that fucking. You know, this is their event. This is like their, this is their Super Bowl. This is their, this is what they live for, you know? Listening to fucking, you know, Brad Diffley fucking songs or some shit blasting out of their, out of their four by fours and getting ready for the football game, you know? But I'm out, I'm, but I'm down on the track, man. Fucking just my fucking hemorrhoids about the size of a football helmet. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not, uh, it's, it, it's rough, but, but it, it, but the whole notion was that, uh, to kind of, yeah, to work yourself through the discomfort, right. To, uh, to have a visceral experience and, um, and man, it hurt, (laughs) but it got me, it got me in that mode. I know I, so that's what I'm probably going to end up doing on, but I'll, so that week, so yeah. So I was explaining to my youngest as we were driving up to Jackson, about the whole doomsday prepper situation and uh, how I'm deci- I just decided I'm going to be a forager or I'm going to at least start my start my quest into foraging and uh, as kind of an alternate response to um, the doomsday prepping, you know, because I think that's really once you go down that road, it's hard to really kind of back out of a situation like that if you're trying to. You know, if you're, uh, if you're trying to can't, you know, if you're trying to, if you're trying to accumulate enough food in an underground bunker for six months and, uh, training your three-year-old on firearms and, uh, and how to, um, how to, how to extract, you know, drinking water from a puddle, um, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? I just want to, I just want to really kind of incorporate, I want to, I want to find that blend. It's like, um, it's a blend of kind of the respect for nature because, uh, and, and survive it's to survive, but, but at the same time, have a, have a, at least have a respect for nature. And, um, it's a, it's quite a neat, it's quite a it's quite a uh, needle to thread, you know. Um, there's always like that divergence, you know. It's kind of like the um, again, it's like the blue collar versus the white collar. It's kind of like the academic versus the versus the uh, working class, and and. The, uh, and, but in life, there's room for both, right? Or I feel like that that there is. There's a lot of great, a lot of great art, a lot of great, um, a lot of great stuff has come from both sides. Um, for example, like um, all the driving that I was doing, my God, after I got done with um, the SATs, there, uh, my youngest and I, we. 
we got a bite to eat. We got some lunch. I drove her back to Modesto, an hour south. Then had to drive all the way from Modesto to Grass Valley for my my roundup up there. And uh, fuck, it was a long day. But so I had to. I was kind of like thinking to myself, like, what am I get? You know, I got a little. I, I mean, it was. I was fatigued. I was definitely fatigued. And so I thought, well, what can I do? How? What can I play that's going to occupy my mind? So I thought, and it just for some reason, I don't know why, it just popped in my head. I'm gonna. Maybe I'll listen to, I'm going to re-listen to uh, Chuck Palahniuk when he was on Rogan, which he'd been on twice. Because I, I don't know, for some I just have a weird connection or I, I just have, I'm drawn to people like this. Chuck Palahniuk was the author of Fight Club, as well as like books like Choke, about this guy that stages like uh, choking in restaurants, fake choking so that people will give him the Heimlich maneuver so that he can, so that he has, because uh, he just wants to be connected with, he doesn't, I guess he doesn't really know how to really connect with people. So he goes in and makes himself vulnerable in the sense that he can uh, stage a choke, like where he's choking on food that somebody will grab him and embrace him and, and, and uh, connect with him in that way. It's kind of, a, it's a twisted world. He's, he lives in a twisted world. But it's fascinating because it's very, like I said, it's very visceral stuff. It's very, um, there's a lot of weird connections to uh, life situations that he brings to the table when he's talking to Rogan. And I love that in a, because it's like the perfect, like he's very, like he, he worked as a mechanic, a lot, he's a lot like Cormac McCarthy, the author of uh, of uh, No Country for Old Men and um, Blood Meridian. It's really savage, savage, dark, bloody books. But he worked as a mechanic like M- McCarthy did uh, b- before he got uh, before before he was a published author. So I don't, you know, there to me it seems like there's a there has to be a connection to that. There has to be something that they draw from. Um, in the case of Polnick, of course, I now listen, I listened to his first interview and then I listened to the second interview um, Sunday, yesterday. And um, he's talking about, um, well, they were talking about like words and situations and things that are taboo in the culture now. Um, like, there was reference to the fact that we call, you know, our master bedroom, why we call it a master bedroom. And I think it has something to do with some kind of like, a, it's a sexual term, you know, master versus slave, right? So the master is where like the master, that's his chamber, right? Much in the same tone, the same ilk as say like um, brake cylinders in a car, there's the master cylinder and the slave cylinder. And they don't, uh, I think they still use that term, but it's, uh, I mean, now in this day and age of this, of, of you know, this age of sterilization and uh, apo- you know, the re- the apoplectic reaction to derogatory what what is deemed as derogatory terms, they've been using those terms master and slave for so long. But Chuck Palahniuk, he's he's a uh, well, he's gay, he's a gay man, but he's but he's one of those interesting, odd gay men that are like into like bodybuilding and um, 
probably some rough sex. And so he's intimate with those communities, the master and slave communities, uh, or at least he reads about it, he knows about it. A lot of his fiction, a lot of his creative writing workshops, he's been kicked out of, uh, or, or you know, um, for for very visceral descriptions of that. But but it comes from that background, that that blue collar background, I think, that connects to. Of course, he also is an acad- He was an academic that he went to uh, university University of Oregon. I think there's a fascinating connection with those Northwestern writers too, like Richard Brodigan, uh, he, who grew up in a trailer, tra- you know, a trailer park like uh, Chuck Palahniuk. Palahniuk grew up in a, tr- in a, you know, a mobile home like uh, Richard Brodigan in that Northwest, that damp climate up there. But, but there's a real weird, I don't know, to me, I think I, I, I see like a real visceral connection to a lot of that in, um, the notion that they bring that background to their writing, even if they are, even if they are academically, uh, educate, you know, they're educated in a, in a big institution like university of Oregon, right. Which is where Polonik went. And, uh, but yet he was a freight liner, a mechanic for, for, for years, uh, until, uh, his successor in writing took off. But so they, they, he brings that blend of, of the blue collar to the, to the cerebral, not necessarily white collar. I don't, not white collar. I think that's a bad term. Almost, almost as bad as the blue collar. I'm talking about the, I'm talking about that blend of the, you know, like, like I was talking about the survivalist and then the chef, right? The artist and then the, the guy that works with his hands. They're, they're almost one and the same. Although when you look at like, so listening to the, uh, the interviews, it was fa- It was funny because <laughs> Polonik is just kind of in his own world. He's so fascinating. He's such a fascinating guy, but it's a very, he comes from a very dark, like a very, very dark upbringing. His dad, his father was murdered. Um, his grandfather tried to murder his, his, his father. Uh, a lot of a lot of dark transgressive like well he considers himself a transgressive writer you know i mean if i mean if you ever seen fight club i mean that's his wheelhouse you know that existence that type of raw power and uh abject just uh dismay for the machinations of society is all part it come you know it comes from i mean being who he is and how he was how he grew up and uh yeah, there's a real dark element to it. But when he's talking to Rogan, it's so funny because he, he, I think he just assumes Rogan like has read the same type of books and knows of the same stories of uh, that that uh, <laughs> that uh, that he that he's familiar with, and, he, and he's not. Uh, it's it's just funny because his you know, like in the first inter- the first time he ever interviewed him, he was um, he's like uh, he, he asked he asked Rogan, you know, Rogan's no dummy. I mean, shit, he he's read. A shit ton, you know, but I think he's more of an audiobook guy than he is an actual like re- reading as com- as comprehension type. But he get, he so he he goes uh, he was talking about Rogan's asking about well, so what's your process for writing? You know, like uh, you know, do you sit in front of a computer or do you write by hand? He's like, no, 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 no. No, when I get to the computer. All I'm doing is re- I'm, I'm, 
the computer to me is not right. Like he, he asked, he goes to Rogan, he goes, uh, he goes, you know what Truman, it's just like what Truman Capote said about, um, on the road, the book on the road with, by Jack Kerouac. And he's, and there's like a kind of a pregnant pause there. Cause he's waiting for Rogan to kind of pick, pick him up there. Right. Like to finish the sentence. And he can't, cause he doesn't. And I, <laughs> cause, cause what Capote said was, uh, and that little, and that, that sawed off little fuck. I'm not a big Truman Capote fan as much as I'm a Kerouac fan, but he goes, uh, that's not writing, that's typing, which is a very clever, it's a very clever sentence. And you get what he means by that, but it's lost on, on somebody that spends probably more time in the gym than he does reading a book. Somebody like Rogan. And I'm not, and that's not me. That's not me shitting on Rogan because I love the guy, but there's two different worlds. There's the, the sinewy world of building muscle mass and working on cars and then there's reading a book like breakfast at tiffany's you know there's a difference um but but you get a guy like polanuk who can kind of interweave those two sensibilities and it's it's really good and it's really funny and uh but it just cracks me up that he just assumes like you know that uh that he knows like the end of a you know, he'll ask him, you know, how, you know, at the end of that Flannery O'Connor short story about this wife who blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about, but it's, you can see the division, the border that, uh, neither of which are aware that the other is, you know, spends more time in. And it's funny, but there's a time and a place for both. And it's, and there's room for both, but it's, uh, but it's just, it's, 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 uh, it's a funny dynamic between the two, you know, cause Rogan's really taught, he wants to know more about his writing process. Whereas Polnick wants to know more about why, you know, or the, uh, cumulatively they want to know, or, uh, they want, I don't know. Rogan's looking at it from like a comic standpoint. Like when you, when you tell a story, what the inspirations are, but, uh, you know, Polnick's got a really, he just has a real out there sensibility where he wants to start you off not ill at ease. He wants to make you laugh out, out, out the gate, but in the end, he wants to break your heart. He wants to make you uncomfortable. He wants to make you f- face your deem face, face the uncomfortable realities of things, you know, like a, like a, like a, like why, you know, like why you would have a prolapsed anus from masturbating in a hot tub, you know, which is something that you probably, it's, it's probably a subject that isn't really, you know, it's not really, not a lot of people are venturing forth into that territory, you know, even if you can make light of it as a stand-up comic, it's not, that's not, that's not, uh, it's, it's dark stuff. It, it can be dark stuff, you know? So, I don't. I just thought that that was uh, that's what occupied my drive back, and you know me, like I, I like I say, I, I kind of return to the scene of a lot of interviews or books or recordings that uh, you know I want to re-listen to to see if I've changed in respect or response to my original listening. The first time I'd listened to it, did I grow as an individual from the first time I'd listened to this conversation or this story or read this book? Have I grown since then? What's, what's different about it now? 
And I think what I what I learned listening after driving fuck like three hours is that uh, there is a definite connection to this mm, rough roughneck way of life that can be interwoven with academia or enlightenment or uh, education or just there is a blend there's a you know the guy that can the guy the guy that the guy that is roided up can also be very um, he can read a fucking he can read Charles Dickens why not why can't he you know that's another thing they talked about is like this level of uh like in the, in the writing process or the creation process, what what it was that um, that that gets that gets them to come up with these ideas or him in particular his ideas specifically, and, and and a lot of it is working out of the gym, and he said that that's what gets the blood flowing, and but it's something that you can do that you don't have to be conscious of while you're doing like lifting weights or walking, or running is like uh, he said Charles Dickens used to walk like 10 to 12 miles a day the streets of London just coming up with these ideas and it's that activity that is a physical activity that you know it's not as athletic but it's similar say to his route to Paul Nuck's routine of working out in the gym lifting weights where you don't have to be conscious of it as you're doing it because you're there you know you're really there to kind of tweak and manipulate your brain into some extra blood flow so that you can come up with ideas or uh you know expand on ideas so you know one hand feeds the other it's that's i guess is what is what it, it what it comes down to and that's really i guess the takeaway I got from the second time around listening to that, those two interviews, fascinating stuff. It's dark stuff, and uh, it's definitely, uh, oh, it's definitely, it comes from a place, you know. Like I say, with like the Cormac McCarthy novels and stuff like that, where he's those are some some dark, dark books. But this is a guy, you know. We're talking about a guy that, you know, was a mechanic was a was a blue collar stiff, you know, who is you know probably could be derided or written off as just some working class stooge. But Cormac McCarthy is probably one of the greatest American writers of our time, right? He's a genius. He's he's been given the, he's been given the label of as a genius, but this is a guy who's just been work worked on motors forever. Just drove an old pickup truck. Lived out in West Texas, you know? Didn't even want to like do book promotion. Didn't care about it, but wrote these fucking just books that are just like, where are you? What the fuck? You know, they just these just dark, dark, violent, violent book. I don't know what they could. Maybe it's just those two guys, Polinuk and McCarthy, that are just like from that mechanical background. That 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 working class background it 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 
it stirs up something. It's, it's an added element that you're not going to get from just taking that creative writing class or just being, just being a, a an academic, you know, and then, and, but, you know, there's plenty of academic, you know, I mean, Vladimir Nabokov, you know, I mean, he was just a pure academic, brilliant, fucking brilliant writer. Just people devote their whole lives to studying him. You know, Martin Amos just writes essay after essay after essay about this guy, you know, and he was just a straight academic. He was actually a, 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 a high class. Uh, his parents were like, uh, not aristocracy, not Russian aristocracy, but like they were like elite, elite. They were like in an elite class, like they had servants and stuff like that. And he he grew up in that environment playing tennis and stuff. And he was an academic, but fucking brilliant writer. So there isn't one mold, but it's just, uh, it was fascinating that these two guys, Polonuk and uh, McCarthy, came from the backgrounds that they do and wrote and write the way they that they did uh, so I guess I don't know maybe it's again it goes back to that theory about once you buy a yellow car you know all of a sudden there's a yellow car there's a yellow car there's a yellow car there's a yellow car there's yellow cars you know we all live in a yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine. All right, that's it, folks. We all live in a yellow submarine. I'll talk at you later. Arrivederci, babies.